what you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast episode number 37. I'm your host Mike and in tonight's episode we are going to be tackling what I would say is one of the most surreal and poignant moments in world history. And for many of us, it was the crossing of the Rubicon moment. And that, of course, is the 9-11 event in which the world watched on in amazement as planes were apparently flown into New York's most iconic buildings, the World Trade Center Towers. Now, this story has been looked at from every single possible angle over and over again. However, I still think there is some merit in going back to it and re-looking at it, and that's what we're going to do tonight. Now, the official narrative, as most people will know, is that a small group of jihadists armed with only box cutters and with just a few months' light aircraft experience under their belt were able to hijack multiple commercial airliners, fly them for almost an hour in the world's most protected airspace, with not a single interception taking place, very little response from the US government, Then, we are told that they somehow managed to pull off what would be extremely technical and some would say near impossible maneuvers, flying two of those planes into World Trade Center, building number one and number two in New York, and then a third plane supposedly hitting the Pentagon. And I say supposedly because we have actually seen zero evidence that a plane hit the Pentagon, so we don't actually know what truly happened there, although we will be discussing some theories on that tonight. But of course, all of this is just the tip of the iceberg as to what truly happened on September the 11th, 2001. Because we all know that after the planes hit the WTC buildings, both of them just went ahead and collapsed, seemingly in textbook demolition fashion, by falling symmetrically and at free fall speed, disintegrating into their own footprints one after the other. And if we follow the official story, this was caused by fires within the building, which was again the first time in history a fire within a building had caused a total building collapse. The first time it ever happened, it happened three times that day. Twice with the World Trade Center 1 and 2, which were both hit by planes, and the third time with World Trade Center building number 7, which actually had no plane hit it. That building just had some office fires, apparently. Some paperwork was on fire, some falling debris, and that one went down too. And again, this was in textbook, demolition fashion, free fall speed, disintegrating into its own footprint once more. Then, of course, there was World Trade Center number six. Nobody talks about this one, but that building blew itself up. In fact, there is some CNN footage where you can see it in the background absolutely surreal. But my point is we had all kinds of insanity happening and there has been so many documentaries, podcasts, articles written about this from the alternative media discussing the many, many red flags that are associated with that day and the events that happened on it and also the events that followed including the Afghanistan war, the Iraq war, 
the invasion of Libya and the death of Gaddafi. So rather than focus too much on all of the red flags and anomalies as people often do which would actually take weeks and weeks of work to do because there's just so many. I thought it'd be really useful to look at this from some very specific angles and tonight I've got on the show Mr. Dan Hanley or Captain Dan Hanley. He worked for over 35 years flying both commercial and military aircraft and he's going to discuss 9-11 from a pilot's perspective. So we're going to look at the technical aspects of those flight trajectories, what happened, and Dan's the expert, so he's going to tell us how it looks from a pilot's perspective. So that's going to be part one, and it's going to lead into part two, where Dan will actually discuss some of the most recent events in Israel too. But then following the interview with Dan, I'm actually going to do a section all by myself talking specifically about the financial aspects of 9-11. So I'm going to talk about the insider trading that took place, the week building up to 9-11. I'm going to talk about the gold heist that was actually underway during 9-11 because there was a lot of gold down there in the vaults. I'm going to talk about the artwork that was stolen. There was so many financial aspects to it. Massive financial fraud took place. So for members, that's going to be a fantastic part too because you're going to get some more of Dan's take. And then I'm going to show you all of the red flags that occurred in relation to finance around that time of September the 11th, 2001. So I'm going to leave it there for the introduction, everyone. I hope you're all well, healthy, and reasonably happy. If you're not a member but you'd like to listen to both parts, please head over to parallelmic.com where you can sign up to become a member. Annual membership is one month for free. Thank you so much for listening, and of course, I'll see you all in the next one. Hi everybody, welcome to the Parallel Mike podcast. I'm joined today by a great guest. It's Captain Dan Hanley. He is a pilot with over 35 years of experience. Dan flew for the US military and also as a commercial airline pilot. Later, Dan would become a whistleblower, spearheading a group of experts from the aviation industry who decided to speak out against the lies being told about what happened on 9-11. So Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you on the show. I know we're going to get into a lot, but first and foremost, Dan, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are, your website, and also what got you into speaking about this 9-11 issue? Why did you speak out and become a whistleblower? Okay, well, first of all, a little bit of background information. I'm a, an American citizen married to a Pakistani who currently resides in Islamabad, Pakistan, where we've lived for the last 14 years. But as you mentioned, I'm also a U.S. federal whistleblower pertaining to 9-11 issues uh, whose rights as such have been denied by the U.S. government for many years. Uh as far as my background, uh, I was a pilot, as you mentioned, for 35 years and accrued over 20,000 flight hours in 15 different aircraft, both in the military and uh, the civilian sector. And uh, since we're going to be talking about 9-11, I can unequivocally state with my background and my experience that I could not have flown the 9-11 flight profiles uh, and neither could the 9-11 hijackers. They were unqualified in the aircraft and too inexperienced to have flown the flight profiles. But, but uh, and there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of pilots who agree with that assessment. Uh, part of the problem is uh, so many people fell for the story, and why did they fall for it? Because the government told them that the hijackers flew the airplanes. The media backed the government up on it, and 99% of the global population are not pilots. And we believe that they cannot conceive of the absurdity of this ludicrous notion that these uh, pilots flew the airplane. Uh, uh, not one single pilot was permitted to testify before the 9-11 Commission, thanks to the executive director of the commission, Philip Zelikow, who prevented any pilots from testifying to what I just mentioned, which is part of the problem. Uh, 
we're a grassroots organization and we've got a website at 911pilots.org and our YouTube channel is at 911pilots. So I encourage you to go to those sites. We can talk about some of the information contained therein in just a little bit, Mike. Uh, but that's basically who I am and where I'm coming from. Wow, that's a great opener, um, Dan, because basically you are an expert in aviation. You spent 35 years flying. And did you say that you flew for military and commercial, Dan? Yes, I did. I flew the uh, P-3 Orion for 10 years. It's a four-engine turboprop that was used during the Cold War to track uh, Soviet submarines. Uh, I did that for 10 years. And there was an overlap there. I got out of the Navy in 1978, was hired by United Airlines, and and uh, I got laid off briefly and went back into the military, and that's where I got my remaining 10 years of uh, the total 10-year military flying time. But uh, yeah, all total, it was 35 years. Uh, I started out at age 19. I wanted to be a pilot my whole life, so uh, I succeeded in that regard. But tragically, in 2003, I was medically grounded illegally by the U.S by the U.S. government, the FAA, and United Airlines for speaking out about 9-11 issues that I fought for, for five years and lost my case. So uh, yeah, that was that was a bad, bad part of my life story. For sure. And, you know, we can maybe talk a little bit about that if you want, just to understand the consequences of standing up and being courageous and being a whistleblower. But one thing that you said in that opener that I just want to comment on because I don't want to forget it, and we're going to get into this whole story in depth, but you mentioned that in the commission there was no pilots that were brought forward to testify in regards to what was happening in terms of the aerial maneuver maneuvers of these planes. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, they The government came out and said, we know who the hijackers were. We know where they trained. They were qualified to fly. And let's move on to another story. And that was the end of it. No pilots wow. testified. And that's what we're all about. We're trying to bring forth enough pilots, uh, gain enough traction to get the interest, public interest in this story. And I can get into the later about the Pentagon hijacker, Hani Hanjar, because key evidence was suppressed by the FBI and the 9-11 Commission concerning his story, his credentials, et cetera. So... I, I definitely would like to cover that a little bit later, Michael. For sure. So so let's start at the very beginning. The official story tells us that on September the 11th, 2001, there was four planes that day that were supposedly hijacked. That's what we got told. Three of those planes supposedly flew into buildings. So we had the two that hit World Trade Center. We had the one that hit the Pentagon. And then there was one that went down. Was it in Stocksville that landed in a field? Shank, I think Shanksville. Shanksville. That's the one. Thanks, Dan. Pennsylvania. Yeah. So there was the Shanksville one too that never hit any target, but we were told it was supposed to be for the White House. And I guess where you're coming at it from, Dan, is you're looking at it from a very technical perspective. You're a pilot. You've flown planes for 35 years. You and all the other pilots that are at your caliber will know what it would have taken to get those planes from the sky into those buildings. And that's ultimately where I think we should begin this narrative because we could go down so many other tracks on this one. But let's just start with the official story. They took off and about 45 minutes after they hijacked those planes, they were hitting buildings. Where are the red flags that we should be looking for in all of that, Dan? Can you maybe start from the beginning and try and make us 
uh, take us through it in a narrative sense. Where are the red flags in this one for the everyday person that knows nothing about flying? Well, for starters, none of them were qualified to fly the airplanes that they were supposedly flying the day they hit the buildings. Okay. And people, I think, have this uh, misperception of piloting because the government said, yeah, they flew mainly these light airplanes. That's that's akin to saying, hey, you flew the fam- drove the family car for a little over a year, and then you could hop in a huge 18-wheeler semi-tractor trailer, uh, get it up to high speed and fly it through, drive it to a, a garage without scraping the sides of the truck. That's how accurate they would have had to have been. And the other red flag is these inexperienced pilots, all three hit their building on their first attempt with military precision. And people don't realize that the navigation system on these airplanes, which these pilots would not have a clue as to how to operate it, but it's derived from cruise missile technology and is extremely accurate, which we'll get into what we're going going to discuss in a bit about remote control airplanes and uh, our contention there. But that's, that's the biggest red flag. That's the one that sent me down the road. When I got grounded, I was exposing big holes in the aviation security system until they came out and announced what the uh, background, flying background of the hijackers were. I'm like, well, that's not possible. And for the longest time, I thought to myself, well, surely they had to have had extensive training in those aircraft in a foreign country. And when the government did not come out and say anything like that, uh, I said, well, then it's impossible. Having flown flight Cessnas 55 years ago, and uh, having flown light Cessnas 55 years ago, and also having flown the 757767 aircraft, I I knew it's impossible. That was the biggest red flag for me. But these hijackers, we cover in detail on our website as well as the profiles that they flew. And we've also, an, another goal of our organization, 9-11 Pilot Whistleblowers, has been to interview pilots from around the world who will attest to the fact not only could the hijackers not have flown the aircraft, but that they could not have flown the flight profiles themselves. And we've got 10 of these such interviews on our website under the drop-down menu. It says pilot interviews. Go to them and listen to what they all have to say. They all have to say basically the same thing, which is why we quit posting them after 10. Uh, plus, YouTube was taking these in it these harmless interviews down claiming it was hate speech. So uh, we just haven't put in, put them up on uh, another platform and posted them on our website, but go take a look at those and see what other pilots say. And you'll see they're agreeing with what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, that's part of the cost, sadly, these days for the online media space to have you, your things taken down with all manner of wild assertions put against it, but mm. simply they're trying to censor you and that's what's going to happen, Dan. But Let's go back to the very beginning then. So you've got American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175. Those were the two that hit the buildings. Now, if you are a pilot and you're on a plane, and we were told the official narrative was these men with box cutters took over the planes, they managed to get into the cockpit, and they managed to start flying these planes. And what you're saying is that these men, there is no way that having done some practice and some lessons on light aircraft Cessnas, they would have been able to even understand that cockpit, let alone fly these planes in very precision manner. Is that right, Dan? There is just no way that that would translate from one to the other. 
That's correct. And we've got on the drop down menu on our website, we have two pages, airplanes and cockpits. And if you do a comparison of the airplanes uh, between a Cessna 172 and a uh, 767, the Cessna weighs one ton versus 100 tons. So there's a huge difference in the handling characteristic of the airplane, especially at that speed. The controls would be very stiff, something they would never have experienced before. Okay, having only flown at 100 knots versus 500 knots, you got an airplane that's only 27 feet long versus one that's 180 feet long. And you're talking about 180 horsepower engine on a Cessna versus two engines blowing out 48,000 pounds of thrust. So when you just look at the airplane differences uh, between the two, it's almost laughable to think that because you could fly one, you could fly the other. And then we also go to the cockpits on the drop-down menu, and it just shows a photo of a Cessna 172 cockpit instrument panel. Compare that with a 767. And at the bottom of the photo, we just say, do you notice any subtle differences? Well, of course you do. There's this vast differences in the what equipment is available on a 172 versus a 767. Just for starters, the 767 has this flight management computer and these two control display units that provide input to this computer. They wouldn't have a clue how to use them. They wouldn't have a clue how to use them. So those those are things that uh, we we put on the website because we want the average person to come in and have a look at what the media and the government hasn't told them. You know, it's really hard, I think, for the average person to truly understand this, because even hearing it, it's really hard for us to understand just that difference that there would be between these two different planes. And of course, I'm completely with your narrative of events that this was not, um, this was not, an, the official narrative is completely incorrect. However, I think it's really important for listeners to to hear it said by someone like you, who is a pilot, just to get the full gravity of it all. But could we say it's almost like the official narrative is telling us, and I'm going to liken this to sports because that's probably my my the wheelhouse where I'm strongest in terms of making this analogy. It's almost like they're saying to us, some guy took six months of karate and then knocked out the UFC champion, did something completely unrealistic. Is that is that a good comparison, Dan? Very good comparison, exactly. Our uh, formula... Uh, get having driven the family car and getting into a Formula One race car and get it up to a very high speed and keep it on the track. You just don't have the experience. And let's talk uh, about the flight path then, Dan. Uh, and there's so much I want to get into on this one. I want to talk about the response that should have or would have been expected by the military when a plane's hijacked. But before we do that, let's talk about the flight path. They basically diverted both planes. One of them flew round almost in a in a in an arc coming back on itself to get to the uh, second tower and the first tower it was almost coming down in on it. Can you talk us through those flight paths, Dan, uh, and lay out where I'm getting it wrong because I probably am, and just tell us about the maneuvers that would have had to have been enacted during this to get those planes into the buildings and how technical and difficult they were. Okay, well. Flight uh, American 11 going into the North Tower. The first plane that hit was basically a straight-in approach, as you say, okay? But those those buildings are only 208 feet wide, and the wingspan on the airplane is 150 feet, okay? You don't have, with that at that speed and that closure rate, you don't have any room for error, and yet 
they hit it dead on. All the airplanes hit their targets dead on, okay, on their first attempt. And that's what's absurd. So talking about American 11, the only analogy we could draw is what I just mentioned about the truck driving through a garage at a high speed and trying to do it without scraping the sides of the truck is that it hit dead center on the target. So, but if you go to United 175 to hit the South Tower, you're right, it came in from the South in an arc. It was the fastest airplane doing like almost 600 miles an hour. Uh, so that closure rate at that speed in a turn like that uh, would require a lot of skill, more than these pilots had. And if you note 12 seconds out, that plane rolls into a 30 degree angle of bank turn. And had that not occurred at that exact time at that angle of bank, the airplane, someone's computer would have missed the building by 800 feet. So you're talking about uh, something that we believe was outside the experience level of these pilots. And as an experienced pilot, Dan, could you have made those hits on those buildings? No, especially not on the first try. Uh, I'm not, a, I wasn't a fighter pilot, as I mentioned, but I interviewed some Pakistan Air Force pilots that flew every fighter under the sun. And they told me, look, Dan, you don't just hop into an airplane as far as targeting it at, at, at a target and be able to do this without extensive practice having done it you know and they said it was laughable to them as fighter pilots to imagine these guys to have targeted these airplanes with such precision to hit it on its first attempt so i can only take from their experience and what they've said regarding uh those two building hits and can you just tell me dan what it would be like for you as a pilot if you're flying that plane Firstly, I, I guess there would have been an autopilot that they would have had to switch off. Is that right? To start to take manual control of it all? They could have left it on, but then they would have had to known how to use the what's called the mode control panel on the airplane. Heading select, vertical speed, L2 change, things like that. So they wouldn't have been qualified to do it. But if they switched the uh, autopilot off, yeah, they could try to maneuver the airplane on their own. But uh, again not having had experience on a heavy airplane, they, they couldn't do it with ease. And how, how, how are they suggesting that these guys, these random guys with box cutters, very little flight experience, very little time in the seat, how are they explaining to us officially that they managed to navigate these planes even to the supposed destination? They don't. Okay. They don't. They don't. They don't. <laughs> No mention as to how they did that. So they and don't tell us that they had some compasses big... on, on board or some kind of, right. uh, I don't know, paper they maps don't. or something. No, they don't They don't address that. So uh, they, they really, they sold this story that these guys were qualified and we know who they were and they had training in Venice, Florida and other places and uh, people bought into it. 22 years later, people still buy into the story which is what we're all about, trying to convince them uh, something else big happened that day. Uh, and we can get in. I don't want to turn off listeners talking about remote-controlled airplanes because they'll say, oh, this is a sci-fi wacko with some wild conspiracy theory about remote-controlled airplanes. But I would like to get into the history of remote control sometime just to describe uh, this technology 
was available on 9-11 and we contended with Hughes. No, I definitely want to get into that, Dan. That's something that we need to talk about. But I just want to, before we go any further, dispel some of the conspiracy that people put out there. And I hear this a lot, that they were holograms, that there was no planes. Um, I've never ascribed to that. I don't understand why people would say that. I I think with Occam's razor, you can probably say that there was definitely planes. Uh, Would you say that those ones are completely out the window from your perspective, Dan? Well, I've seen all their supposed evidence, the photographs, the uh, videos, etc., arguing their case. But I come back and, I, first of all, that's really outside the scope of 9-11 pilot whistleblowers because all we say is the hijackers couldn't have flown the airplanes, but the remote control system could. But uh, I asked them, how do you explain the airplane size hole in the South Tower? Okay. And they usually can't explain that. They, they come to me and say there's no planes. I go, yeah, there were. There were four planes with passengers that got airborne. And some people say, how do you know they got airborne? I said, well, I was at Newark Airport that morning. And no, United 93 took off with crew and passengers. If there were no planes, what happened to them? So I, I do not subscribe to the no planes theory. And then I'll probably, if you got a chat on this, get lambasted for saying that. But, uh, I've seen all the evidence, uh, even though officially I do not endorse planes or no planes, holograms or no holograms. I think it's uh, a bit far-fetched, although I will subscribe to the idea that there was a possible air, airborne swap of airplanes. Okay, yeah, I actually wanted that. to ask you about that one, Dan. Um, yeah. Either an airborne yeah. swap or that one one set of well, the planes I've been told that what could have happened is that there was a military base and one of the planes, uh, one set of planes could have landed and then a completely new set could have been take, taking off from there. Um, but maybe before we get to that, Dan, I just wanted to get your opinion as an experienced pilot about hijacking situations. What do you get taught about hijacking situations when you're flying commercial aircrafts and what is the normal response? Uh, there's a whole track we can go down here to do with NORAD, and need and what they should have done, what they didn't do, what they was actually doing on the day. Uh, but just from right. your perspective as a pilot, can you take us through that a little bit, Dan? Okay. Well, there's a device called a transponder on the airplane that has a four-digit code with four individual thumb wheels that you dial in a numeric code, okay? And different codes mean different things to the air traffic controller, and there's a hijack code. I won't get into the specific codes. And there's an emergency. They're called squawks these codes you put in, an emergency squawk you put in, okay? And the air traffic controller would come back and ask you to confirm that you are squawking such and such because it, once you say, indicate to him you're being hijacked, they immediately launch the NORAD, NORAD airplanes. And there were two F-16s launched out of, I believe, Langley and were headed inbound to Washington and had a target acquired and they were turned out over the North Atlantic for I don't remember how many minutes, but uh, they could possibly have intercepted whatever it was that hit the Pentagon. So, yes, there, I talked to, uh, I actually uh, talked at length to an air traffic controller whose name escapes me, uh, who went into great detail explaining to me the lapses that occurred that day and who was responsible for the stand down of uh, airplanes that day. So I believe with the, uh, there was a lot of confusion with the military exercises going on. 
one of which was simulating the hijacking of an airplane. Okay. So there was a lot of confusion going on, but I also believe that NORAD was ordered to stand down and allow all this to take place. Yeah, so for listeners that are not aware, there was uh, an exercise, a war game exercise taking place on the exact same day as these attacks on 9-11 that were told were attacks. And this was called Vigilant Guardian. And they were essentially wargaming exactly what was happening. That was part of the war game. So what they said is that when the, the genuine attacks were happening, they didn't know if it was part of the war game or not. So they all got confused and the military jets didn't get scrambled on time and they got sent in the wrong places. So there was a story there that they were able to give the public as to why what would normally happen, which is um, essentially what would happen is if you have a plane hijacked, they scramble out jets immediately, don't they, Dan? And they have a set yeah. procedure where they will uh, either tap the wing to knock it to, to show it that it's there. They'll send a trace around underneath it. They do all kinds of things to ensure the safety because let's face it, the U.S. military uh, the U.S. airspace is one of the most secure airspaces in the world. They would be scrambling jets out at the slightest hint of an incursion, wouldn't they? Right, exactly. So they only have so many minutes to respond. I told you I flew the P-3 Orion, which was an overwater airplane mainly, and uh, there's something around the all the way around the United States called the Air Defense Identification Zone. And if they've got a radar contact in there, they can't identify a, a ballistic missile would not be picked up by radar until it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, okay? So the sudden appearance of a radar contact on their screen could be indicative of a, a missile coming into the atmosphere, and they are required within so many minutes, and I don't remember exactly how many minutes they have, five minutes, ten minutes, or whatever, the scrambled jets, and they've got these jets sitting on ready alert with pilots in the cockpit ready to go for this eventuality of this possibility and uh so when i flew p3s we'd be down low level and we had a pop-up point it was called we pop up into the air defense identification zone and we only had so many minutes to make radio communications with uh the air traffic control before they'd scramble on you if they couldn't identify you so uh it was real critical for us to be identified in those areas and for these planes that wandered around for over an hour without being intercepted uh, as unidentified targets uh, is unbelievable. But the transponders on the airplane, the transponder is a device I said that a air traffic control uses to identify the aircraft. They were switched off. And normally when they're on, uh, it gives the flight number, the altitude and the airspeed of the, the uh, aircraft. And when you switch it off, you still will get what's called a skin paint the RF energy reflecting off the aircraft hull back to the antenna. So they'll get a blip on the screen, but it won't be, have any of the other identifying features on it. So uh, they they were available to be seen, the blips on the screen, but they wouldn't have been identifiable with the aircraft, uh, the individual aircrafts we're talking about here. Well, uh, surely the black boxes would have given us all the information, wouldn't they, Dan? What, what happened to those? Yeah, yeah. mysteriously disappeared. Well, actually, uh, I understood that they were too, the ones they did find were too damaged to get any information from. You know, it's funny when they say that, too damaged to get any information from, but they found the passport of hijacker Satam El-Sukami, 
I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but they found his passport two blocks from the World Trade Center. Apparently, his passport managed to fly out, I don't know, maybe out the window of the plane, land two blocks away, and they immediately found this passport and said, there you go, this is who it is, this is... It's an attack by Muslim hijackers, and they had the narrative for war within a few days, didn't they? It's an insult to one's intelligence. It is. That's a really nice way of putting it. Yeah. So, And just before we leave that one, another thing that happened is they told us that they were not prepared for this, that they, I think it was George Bush who said nobody in government uh, or any prior government could have envisioned that this would this kind of attack would happen, and yet that's a lie because they were actually wargaming the exact thing in the years prior too. I'm pretty sure Nora did exercises wargaming planes being hijacked or planes being flown at least into the White House, into the World Trade Center, and into the Pentagon, which was exactly the three right. targets. And they did wargame this in the years prior, but then they told us that no, we had no. Nobody could have envisioned that this would have happened. That was a lie, wasn't it? Well, why don't you ask me how much faith, trust, and belief I have in the U.S. government? <laughs> yes, of course it was a lie. So, yeah, I, I, I fail to uh, uh, agree with any information that the government puts out without doing an in-depth investigation of it because they've lied so much about so many things there, uh, which we can... I don't want to get off topic here, but uh, the the uh, part of the reason I personally am doing this is because there's never been a criminal investigation into 9-11. The 9-11 Commission didn't constitute one, okay? And it wouldn't have occurred had the next of kin not demanded it. And then it didn't convene until 14 months after the fact in November 2002. And uh, Lee Hamilton and Tom Keene wrote a book called Without Presidents, the inside story of the 9-11 Commission, where they said it was underfunded, time-constrained, and set up to fail. Uh, The book didn't get any publicity for some reason. But uh, I interviewed a gentleman named Ray McGinnis. He lives in Vancouver. His book's on Barnes & Noble, and it was unanswered questions. What the families asked and the 9-11 Commission ignored. And he's working with the next of kin. And of the the next Ken had a whole list of questions they demanded the 9-11 commission answer. And of these questions, only uh, 70, 70% went unanswered. And of the remaining 30%, only 10% were answered adequately. And so you have to ask yourself, talking about the United States government lying, if you were next to Ken and lost a loved one and knew the government was lying and you had nowhere else to turn, uh, who do you turn to? I, I'll get into the lawyers committee later, but uh, that's part of the reason I'm doing this because, uh, and others with me are doing this because there are unanswered questions. They, we know we've been lied to and we know that the United States government will never convene another 9-11 commission regardless of who's in office because they were complicit in the crime. Yeah, and for listeners that are not aware, there was big payouts given to a lot of those families. And I think there will have been a clause in those payouts that they had to stop speaking out against um, the attacks themselves. And I know one of the people who didn't take that money was, I think her name was Beverly Eckhart. I think that was her name. Uh, And she flew out to actually at the invitation of President Obama to discuss her concerns because she refused the payout and she continued to speak out and she created a foundation or organization to continue the fight. 
She flew out to see Obama and on the way back from that visit, her plane crashed and she died. So that was one of the big names that was continuing the fight, refused to pay out, but she died in a plane crash herself, which is a tragedy. And again, I, I have to say extremely suspicious. Right, exactly. I know of her story. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So let's let's move on a little bit, Dan. And okay. where do you want to take it from here, Dan? Do you want to talk about specifically those two planes that hit the buildings first? Because I think if there was going to be two planes that were remote controlled, those would be the ones. And then maybe we could speak about the Pentagon separately. Or maybe you want to bring that into this one too. But I think there's a lot to discuss on the Pentagon one as well. So where would you prefer to take it? Can I, can I just talk briefly about the history of remote controlled airplanes? So to gain credibility in regard to the uninterruptible autopilot system I'm going to talk about. So people yeah, will for sure, because better. I have no idea about this, Dan, and I think most people will have zero background knowledge. And when you don't have background knowledge, your first instinct is to say that's not likely, that's not possible. But I think right. what you're going to tell us is something else. So please take us there, Dan. Let us know how right. how this history unfolded with remote control aircraft. I think that's the best route to go here. Well, let me give you a little bit of background about the purpose of our organization, 9-11 Pilot Whistleblowers, and that is to show that the 9-11 aircraft were electronically hijacked and remotely controlled and that there were no Muslim hijackers controlling the airplane. And this system takes complete control of the aircraft autopilot and flight management computer and flies the aircraft to its selected target. And once it's engaged by a remote source, an external source, the pilots cannot disconnect the aircraft. So people say that's not possible. I mean, don't please don't tune us out yet. Let me at least explain the history of 9-11, um, of remote-controlled airplanes. It goes back as far as 79 years ago in 1944, when towards the end of uh, World War II, the United States Army Air Corps launched Ab Operation Aphrodite in Europe, in the UK specifically, where they took gutted out old B-17 bombers. They gutted them out to lighten the load of the aircraft so they could load it with 30,000 pounds of uh, Torpex, which is a highly incendiary compound. Now, pilots were required to make the takeoff from these uh, in the airplane, but once they got airborne, they'd bail out of the aircraft and uh, were rescued, and the airplanes were remotely guided to targets in Europe. Now, this was uh, 79 years ago, and we point out on our website under the remote control tab on the drop-down menu, that uh, Joe, Joe Kennedy, JFK's older brother, was actually killed in one of these top-secret missions when the airplane blew up due to a malfunction before he could bail out. Now, there's a number of other examples we could cite, but I'm only going to cite a couple of them here. And you jump ahead 40 years to 1984, and imagine the technology advances from 1944 to 1984, uh, the FAA and NASA launched a joint crash test experiment in a remote area where they took a four-engine commercial jet, a Boeing 720, loaded it up with crash dummies and cameras because they wanted to test crew and passenger survivability in the event of a crash landing. They took this big airplane off by remote control, flew it around the pattern several times before intentionally crash landing it. Now, this was 17 years before 9-11, they were remotely controlling commercial jet aircraft. And there's some other examples I could cite, like uh, Dark Star was an uh, uh, unauthorized, uh, unmanned uh, aerial vehicle, military vehicle that they 
flight tested in 1996, as well as a global guardian and and uh, uh, the other, I can't think of predator drone aircraft that were being flight tested during this time. But if you jump ahead to the late 80s, early 90s, now, mind you, this remote control technology extends over many years, many decades, they've been researching and developing this technology, okay? If you jump ahead, late 80s, early 90s, this system we just talked about, the uninterruptible autopilot, we claim was researched and developed. Now, there's a patent on this. You can you can Google uninterruptible autopilot and uh, you'll get a Wikipedia article that says, Boeing Honeywell uninterruptible autopilot. And it's somewhat misleading because in this article, it says that Boeing patented this uh, device in uh, 2006 after 9-11. Well, this is true, they did. But we have informants, witnesses who have come forward who will attest, one in particular, an avionics technician, that he worked on this system in 1996-1997. And there's another informant that I won't go into detail who the person is, but they also provided this type of information to us that we know this system was researched and developed in the mid 90s prior to uh so we know it exists we know it was patented and uh we contend that it was used on 9-11 so we know today that there is a whole host of these types of aircraft they're called unmanned aerial vehicles or drones and would you say that the technology is similar but are, are you talking about something slightly different where maybe that these pro these planes could be programmed to take that flight path uh, rather than have someone actually manning them uh, from a distance and controlling them, I don't know, by a remote or um, some kind of surveillance system where you could see the, where that plane was heading to. Well, there's a 66-page document under articles entitled MH370 on a drop-down menu on our website that goes into great detail about the development of the, the uh, system. But yes, they could technically program the flight management computer, but someone would have to trigger this device to take control of the aircraft. But more likely than that, it it involves uplinking information into this computer, whether it's from a ground station, an airplane, or a satellite, getting it into the computer and activating the system. Because like I said, the navigation system derived from cruise missile technology. Once you get a course, altitude, and airspeed in there, a trajectory. That's where that airplane's going within a couple meters. And this is evidence on a uh, an auto land when you're in inclement weather and the visibility goes down below, say, 1,200 feet where you can see down the runway. Pilots are required by regulations to auto land the airplane. The airplane touches down right on center line in the touchdown zone and tracks down the runway under, under the guidance of, in this case, a radio signal, but it's also augmented by the flight management system. And the pilots actually have to disconnect the autopilot to clear the runway. Well, once this system's engaged, it's got its own power source. So there's four ways of disengaging an autopilot. By turning the switch off that you had turned it on with, by pushing on uh, the yoke or the, any of the flight control systems with a 70 pound or greater force, or there's a button on the steering wheel of the yoke that you can press, or lastly, you could pull the circuit breaker supposedly powering the system. Well, in this uh, 
one instance where this avionics technician saw this system operating, they pulled every circuit breaker in the airplane and the system was still powered. You can't unpower it. You can't override it. So once it's engaged, once it's got this navigation information in the computer, that's where the airplane's going. Wow. So what would you say is your best guess or opinion as to what those planes were? Do you believe that the planes that took off that day were the same planes that hit those buildings? Well, I don't know. And there's a lot of speculation. Uh, you know, some people, we won't get, we haven't gotten to the Pentagon yet, but some people claim a cruise missile hit it versus American 77. Okay. So all these arguments are outside the scope and purpose of 9-11 pilot whistleblowers. But getting into whether or not there was an airplane swap of aircraft, they talk about American 11 and United 175, the two planes that hit the Twin Towers. Both their flight paths crossed over Stewart Air Force Base, and that's where some people claim an airborne swap of aircraft took place. Now, there's this four independent photos taken of a United 175 just before it hit the South Tower. And all four of them show a long cylindrical pod on the bottom of the aircraft. And some people say, no, no it was photoshopped or it was a reflection of the engine off the fuselage, et cetera. Well, I was told that the photos were examined by uh, uh, photographic experts in uh, Spain who determined that there was no photoshopping. The, the photos were too grainy, et cetera, that the pod necessarily had to have been there. Well, the 767 fuselage, the, the belly of it is flat, smooth. There's nothing there. So if that pod was in fact there, that wasn't United 175. It had to have been swapped out with another airplane. Now you can yeah. get into uh, Dov-Zakheim, you can get into the flight termination system, you can talk about all that and how it could have been swapped and used to fly these airplanes into building because some believe that it was a, a uh, Boeing, uh, Boeing 7, 67 reconfigured airborne tanker fuel tank that was uh replacing these airplanes but i i don't know i mean you've got uh you know who rebecca roth is i can't recall the name okay she's written three books uh it's called methodical series these three books methodical illusions methodical deceptions and methodical conclusions okay and in these books, she talks about the flight termination system, which I claim resembles the uninterruptible autopilot system, but I feel like it has a slightly different function. But she claims that the aircraft were electronically hijacked and remotely guided to an air base up in uh, Westover Air Force Base up in uh, Massachusetts, and that passengers were required to make phone calls before they were snubbed. Okay. That that's her theory in her book. Another friend of mine, Phil McConnell, claims that they were swapped and electronically hijacked, flown out over the Atlantic, blown up. And then a third man I know of, Dr. James Fetzer, claims that the airplanes were remotely guided to Cleveland and uh, Chicago. So all three of those I can't embrace because I don't have enough proof to show that happened. All I can look at is the uh, photographs and say, well, if that was a 
if those are accurate photos, that was not United 175. Yeah, and I think for what you're doing, Dan, it's extremely important, isn't it, to remain on the on the topic that you are an expert in and to discuss it from that angle. Because let's face it, with 9-11, there are, I would say, millions of pieces of separate evidence that indicates something else was happening. And when you put them all together, it's an absurd amount of evidence. And you could talk for months about it. We spoke about it before we started. You can look into just one tiny fraction of this, like, for example, the financial elements, the insider trading that took place in the year, in the uh, weeks before the attacks, the massive amounts of put options that were done on uh, airlines and call options that were put on defense manufacturers. People clearly knew that this was going to happen. Now, they say, well, we think that it was the uh, terrorists must have done it. The terrorists must have done it. Or in fact, the actual 9-11 Commission said there was no there was nothing suspicious about it, even though there was 5,000% uptick in these uh, options calls. So, you know, there's so many things we could focus on, but it's important that we stay in the wheelhouse, isn't it, Dan, so that you are not discredited by, as a conspiracy theorist, that you you can actually be putting yourself out there and saying, no, I'm just telling you that something here is not right. And I've got a load of pilots that agree with me. Uh, and on that subject, Dan, before we go into the Pentagon, how have other pilots responded to you publicly and how have they responded privately do you get any pilots that come across you and say well i agree with you but i'm not willing to say it publicly oh too many way too many i told you about we us one of our goals was recruiting pilots who would be willing to testify on camera as to the absurdity of this whole notion okay and i said we have 10 of them on the pilot interviews on our website it was like pulling teeth to get people to come out because they they're either working. Uh, I had some of them say, look, it's 22 years. It's old stuff. I'm not going to participate. But too many said, no, I don't want to have any anything to do with it. They're too afraid to come out because they hear stories like me that lost my job as a result, and they don't want to speak out. And it's a tragedy because as near as I can estimate, there's about 300,000 pilots in the world. And had just 10% of them spoke out, and said, no, this is not possible. The whole outcome could have been different, but it wasn't. So, uh... Well, you know, we've lived through the same thing ourselves for listeners that maybe think, well, could that even happen? Why would more not have spoken out? It's just the same as with COVID. How many doctors have spoken out? You know, how many medical profession professionals? How many nurses? How many people in the media? How many celebrities? Very, very few. And that's because they are so good and adept these days at policing it through threats of, financial loss, uh, or maybe even worse, you know, complete cancelling publicly, which is, it sounds to me, Dan, like you've had a fair bit of that in your own life. And maybe we, we could touch on that for a moment. But before we do, Dan, let's maybe go back to the Pentagon, because we never dis discussed it. You mentioned that some people say no plane hit the Pentagon. There's very good reason to suspect that is the case. When you look at the only two pieces of footage that have ever been released on that, there is no plane. There is a big hole in the building that would just fit the nose of a plane. There's no fuselage. And we know that the FBI immediately confiscated all of the surveillance footage around that area. So all of the local businesses had FBI agents knocking on the door immediately after this supposed attack on the Pentagon. And they asked them for the footage, and that footage has never been released. So we don't know what happened. But what we do know is from the photos that were released, the stills, there is no fuselage. There's just a little bit of um, very surface 
I mean, you couldn't even call them plain parts. There's just maybe a few panels on the floor. There is a big hole in the Pentagon, and that's actually the, the <laughs> that's actually the wing where they had all of the accounting. And we know that the day before 9-11, Donald Rumsfeld announced that there was uh, $2.1 trillion, I want to I want to say $2.1 trillion missing from the budget. Trillion, yeah. 1.3 right. trillion, that's the one. 1.3 trillion dollars was missing from the Pentagon budget. Yeah. yeah. And we'll never see that footage. We'll never see that film footage because they say it's a national security issue. Run that by me, how that could be the case. I mean, the sole evidence that would show what struck the Pentagon, they're suppressing us from even seeing because they don't want us to know. Yeah, they don't want us to know. And I would actually say it's a national security issue to not see that footage because then it opens the door to something much more insidious. So I'd say that's the actual national security issue is not being shown the footage. Right. Okay, right. so so what what let's talk a little bit about that flight path. You touched on it before, Dan. We're told that a plane hit that building almost horizontally to the ground at 600 miles per, per hour. Can you just tell us the overview of why that's ludicrous? And also, why was all of the telephone poles standing upright? Why was there no evidence at all that a plane had gone down there? Like, as a pilot, can you just please lay it out for us? Yeah, so first of all, let me give background on Honey Hunter because he's a smoking gun, and I have some information that few people are aware of, but we put it on the website about Hani Hanjur and his experience level, okay? Hani Hanjur was a 29-year-old Saudi Arabian hijacker who came to the States in the mid-90s and took some flight training and it's well in light airplanes, and it's well documented he was a very poor student. So much so that when he, he returned back to Saudi Arabia but came back to the States just prior to 9-11 and tried to re-enroll in a school he had attended before and they refused to accept him because they didn't want to waste assets on him because they said he was such a poor student that he was there before. Now, supposedly, American 70, well, American 77 did take off uh, out of Washington Dulles Airport heading towards the West Coast. It got to cruise altitude for a while, made an about face, 180 degree turn back into Washington, started a descent, and at 7,000 feet, commenced a 330-degree descending, accelerating corkscrew turn to arrive precisely at the surface. This is the big part. To arrive precisely at the surface without striking it, just above the surface, at almost over 500 knots to strike the Office of Naval Intelligence on his first attempt. Now, what's wrong with this picture? Well, this same maneuver was replicated in a simulator and flown by another group, Pilots for 9-11 Truth, very highly experienced pilots, and they crashed the simulator attempting the same maneuver. And yet we've been led to believe that Hani Hanjo, this poor pilot, was able to do it on his first attempt. But it gets better than this, uh, Mike. Uh, one month prior to 9-11, Hani Hanjo went to the Freeway Airport in Bowie, Maryland, and wanted to run a Cessna 172. Now, when you go to a fixed space operator like this, they don't just throw you the keys and say, have fun. They've got to, if they don't know you, they got to take you up on an evaluation flight to make sure you can fly. Well, Hanjur went up on not one or two, but uh, three evaluation flights with two separate instructors, a woman named Sherry Baxter and a guy named Ben Connor, okay, who came back and told the chief flight instructor, Marcel Bernard, don't run him an airplane. He can't handle it. 
This is a Cessna 172. And this is one month prior to 9-11. So what did Hanger do? He goes down the road to Congressional Air Charter, another fixed base operator uh, in Maryland, and rent, rented an airplane and supposedly went up with an instructor named Eddie Shalev, who came back and said he was a good pilot. Now, who was Eddie Shalev? He was an Israeli who came to the United States in April 2001 and served had served in the Israeli Defense Force. And uh, was he Mossad? We don't know, but it causes one to raise their eyebrows because I mentioned that Philip Zelikow, the executive director of the 9-11 Commission, who had denied any pilot from uh, the right to testify before the 9-11 Commission, him and FBI Director Robert Mueller suppressed the following information. That Shalev's testimony that he was a good pilot only appeared in the 9-11 Commission final report as an end note, and Shalev's name was mentioned just once. The whole incident of the freeway airport and him being denied rental of an airplane three times was left out of the report altogether, that he couldn't fly. So you have this Pentagon hit that had to ha happen with military precision that we know Hanger couldn't have flown, that we contend either it was hit by a cruise missile and the airplane swapped out and sent somewhere else, or it was the uninterruptible autopilot with this cruise missile precision that hit the building. That That's our argument there. But why was the Pentagon so critical? Well, had the, twi had the Twin Towers been the only hit that day and the Pentagon not been hit, the United States government would have limited their remarks by saying that it was a terrorist attack on U.S. soil, okay? But then it hit a military installation. They declared it an act of war and launched Operation Enduring Freedom into Afghanistan based on this lie that Hani Hanjir flew an airplane into the building. Wow. Yeah, I think that's really important to point out. Yeah, that that is what gave them the ability to say that they were attacked in a military fashion like you said it wasn't just a terrorist attack it was also a military attack and you know this whole idea that afghanistan was responsible and osama bin laden was hiding in a cave somewhere orchestrating these is just the most ludicrous i'd say that's probably one of the most ludicrous wars in history and that's saying something because all of the wars are ludicrous but that one particularly right. there was zero evidence of it Dan, for anyone that wants to support you with 9-11 pilots and just find out more about what's coming next, where should they go to? And you also mentioned the documentary is coming up, so maybe you could just tell listeners how to find that. Okay, the documentary, just Google 9-11, uh, the advent of the Ninth Crusade, and it'll pop up. We don't have it on our website yet. I'm having difficulty getting a hold of my webmaster on the other side of the world right now to do it. But uh as far as contacting us on our website, there's a contact us tab at the top of the page. All we need is your name and email address, and we'll put you on our emailing list and keep you apprised of uh, our progress or lack thereof. Uh, but uh, I just encourage everyone to go to the 911pilots.org website. It's an easy read. Read it, watch the videos there, and see if we can't convince you that these aircraft were electronically hijacked and remotely controlled. And finally, Michael, I want to thank you for this opportunity to have been on your program and to discuss these matters. You're a great host. Well, I appreciate that, Dan. And we appreciate you for all of the work that you're doing to try and bring some truth out there in the world. It's needed more than ever. 
And I really appreciate this opportunity to speak to you. So thank you so much. Okay, Mike. Bye-bye. Take care. Okay, everyone. So we're going to leave it there for part one. Thank you so much for listening. In part two, the conversation continues. And Dan talks about the recent events in Israel and how this is actually all linked to 9-11 and also the plan for the Greater Israel Project. Now, this is Dan's opinion, but I think it's worth listening to just to understand what might be going on. Dan also talks about the New World Order and his opinion as to where we are actually heading. So that's a fascinating start to part two. And then I start to talk about the financial side of things that really is an eye-opener for those that have not heard it. I talk about the markets, how they responded to 9-11, insider trading that took place prior to it, showing that somebody somewhere knew what was going to happen and was trying to make a lot of money from it. So members, I look forward to seeing you over there for part number two. For everyone else, please consider becoming a member if you would like to hear these full-length episodes. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening and I will see you all in the next one. What you are basically. Deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. Honestly expressing yourself. Peace for all men and women, for all men and women, for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, peace in all time. The fabric and structure of existence. Not really peace in our time, peace in all time.